You're listening to sermon audio from Gospelite Baptist Church. For more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit gospelite.org. Turn there with me. Mark chapter 15. This is the final message in our series of messages on growing in the likeness of Christ. There is one more chapter. I preached on Mark chapter 16 back this past Easter. And so this will be our final message next Sunday. Uh, Brother Jeremy Horton, our associate pastor, will be speaking a very exciting message that we've been praying about together, and he'll be presenting that message next Sunday morning. I'll be here to receive it with you. Let's be faithful next week. We'll start a new series after that, and then on into the Advent season, which it's hard to believe we're already there. Christmas is right around the corner, so uh, we're planning, Jordan and I, on having four weeks of Advent together with music and singing and preaching and teaching on the Word of God. It's going to be awesome. I want to begin this morning with a word. Are you ready? I came across this word this week in some counseling. Uh, in fact, I was talking to, I think it was a teenager, who said that they were counseling with Craig Connor. And Craig, who works closely with uh, our teens as well as Mo and others, our student pastor and others. Craig, Craig, they said this. They said, Craig, he talked to me and he gave me another perspective on that problem I had. When he said that word perspective, I thought, what a way to start this message this morning. Perspective. Let's begin with the definition. It's in your notes. I'll give you another one in a minute from the dictionary. But for your notes, we need perspective in this life, and sometimes we lose perspective. Perspective is seeing something according to its true size. Seeing something according to its true size. You know, sometimes we don't see it that way, do we? I don't. You know, we think our problems and our issues are very large, and we think that many times God is very small. But, in fact, the reverse of that statement is true. If we put things in perspective, our problems can become smaller, and our God can become bigger. Amen. And our problems seem to be very small, and sometimes we get a little defensive of that. Don't my problems are small. Preacher, what are we talking about? Well, you need perspective. I want you to get some perspective this morning. Another definition of perspective is this, an assessment of the dimensions of something by comparison to something else objective. So I take something I'm considering and I put something against that that's similar to it and I, and I gain perspective. For instance, when my boys were younger, I used to take trips with them uh, to go to NBA basketball games and camps. So we went to this one camp sponsored by, any old-timers here remember this name? Now, now if you admit this, I I got my hand up, George Gervin. Any George Gervin? Thank you, one, two, three, any about four, five, good. About five of us remember George Gervin, that's about right. All right, the rest of you just aren't fans, okay? George Gervin was the Iceman. Dude could play. Probably the, you know, I, I, I haven't checked this. I'm sure he was an MVP at least once or twice. A scoring leader like four years. The guy was incredible. We went to his NBA camp. I took my two sons. Man, I was so excited about showing my boys off. But when my five foot six and my five foot eight son walked into that gym, I got some quick perspective. As I looked at boys that were their age, six foot five and six foot six and seven, and could dunk it, windmill dunks. And I kind of thought, well, maybe I don't have NBA sons after all. Got some perspective, you know, as I put those two together. Sometimes I think we need perspective maybe with our financial problems. If we travel to a third world country and see just how little people have, kind of puts things in perspective, right? Or maybe your issue is the issue we find in Mark chapter 15, the issue of injustice. 
Maybe someone cut you off in traffic this week. Oh, hate it when that happens. Maybe somebody said something that hurts you. Maybe somebody criticized somebody in your family or even larger than that. The issue can consume us if we don't, listen, put it in perspective. And so Mark chapter 15 is a location that is filled with more injustice than you can find at any place in time or at any point in human history. The message this morning is very detailed, and I'm going to go quickly, so I need two things from you. Number one, I need, I need you to hang in there with me and give me your attention. I'm going to finish on time, but I'll, to do that, I know I'll need to, 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 to really be on top of this with God's help, the Holy Spirit self, and, and by God's grace. Number two, I'm going to ask you to respond at the end in one of three ways. We're going to look at the end of Mark chapter 15 at how they responded in the story, and we're going to be able to choose one of those responses. You'll pick your own. You'll have the free will to do that. And I pray that God will help us all to make a good response. Let's jump in, shall we? The five injustices of Jesus. Number one, the injustice of false accusations by the religious leaders. Now, Mark chapter 15, Jesus is already in the middle of a trial. Already. Mark chapter 14, we'll look back in just a moment at a few of those passages just briefly. We're in Mark 15 for the most part. But he's already in the middle of a trial. Look at verse 1 of Mark 15. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Now the legal Jewish system or the Jewish legal system that was very intricate and far beyond any legal system in that day... Believe it or not, is the same legal system that our whole Western system of jurisprudence is based upon is that particular legal system. Many of the things we're going to discuss in just a moment are going to be very familiar to you. A good summary of those things are found in Deuteronomy in chapter number 16. Just a brief summary, if I could, of the intricacy of their legal system back in that day. In Luke 8, uh, rather Deuteronomy chapter 16, it says in verse number 18, you shall appoint judges. God quickly was telling them that you're going to have legal problems. So here's how to handle it. You're going to have criminal issues. And so let me give you some ways to handle those things, how to deal with those issues that you're going to have. I want you to get judges and officers in your towns that the Lord your God is giving given you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. I mean, it's been a big part of what has been brought to the attention of the American people as we even go to vote. How important is it to have uh, judges that are appointed to judge righteous judgment and to judge righteously? So sometimes people are able to make their decisions on who they vote for with one of these things being in mind, who is going to judge in our nation. And Jesus said, that's, God said, that's important. Appoint these judges and officers in your towns, in your areas. You shall not pervert justice. By the way, just quick shout out for a great judge in our church, Judge Ralph Ohm, who serves in our community, a Christian judge, a righteous judge, a great man. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving, giving you. 
The whole system was based upon that. That's just a snapshot, but the whole system of jurisprudence was based upon that, that, those, those, those things. And these people were in, 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 very intense, very intense about making sure that an innocent person was never falsely accused or condemned. Very serious about it, very intense about it, like we try to be today. But in the trial of Christ, they set all of those things completely aside. In fact, the injustice and false accusations of the religious leaders against Christ is absolutely incredible. It's mind-boggling. I want to share with you eight of those and eight injustices that Jesus experienced in his trial. I got these from uh, Chuck Swindoll in his book on the life of Christ, an incredible book I've been using in our college to teach that class. Let me quickly give you these eight injustices. Mark chapter 14, as we learn from that particular chapter, the initial trial of Jesus was at night, but it was supposed to be held in the daytime, in between the morning worship and the evening meal. That would have been when it should have been held, but not with Christ. Number two, the second injustice we find in this trial was it was to be in public. Yet the initial trial of Christ was held in private at the home of the high priest. In fact, when I was in Israel, as some of you were with me this past year, back in, or actually back in January, before COVID, uh, you know, was, was known in our nation, we took this picture. These are the exact steps that lead up to Caiaphas' house, the high priest. We walk these steps, and as we walk these steps, we visualize. These are the very steps that Jesus was led up to his scourging and torture inside of Caiaphas' house where this picture, this dungeon picture, this would have been underneath his house, literally the place where Jesus would have been flogged and beaten. Standing there, there are no words to share with you how we felt at that moment. Number three, the defendant was not allowed to incriminate himself. Much like our Fifth Amendment today. Yet Jesus was constantly badgered into speaking. Constantly. In fact, look at the second verse of our text. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And this was just one place where where he was badgered with questions. And he answered in this particular case. Although he didn't answer in every case. But in this case, he said, you've said so. Number four. The members of the Sanhedrin were supposed to serve as impartial justices. They were allowed to question, they were not allowed rather to question the accused. And yet they, even though they were supposed to stand back and listen, they never ceased speaking in an accusatory way. They constantly accused Jesus. They constantly accused him over and over again during his trial, before his trial. They constantly accused him. And yet that's not what they were supposed to do. Jesus, number five, was given no defense. Yet that was required. There were no witnesses called on his behalf. That's why we say today, innocent until proven what? Guilty. But not in the case of Jesus, the fifth injustice. He was given no defense. Number six, all the witnesses had to agree completely to the exact specific date and time and action. And yet we find in Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 55, now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But get this, they found none. For many bore false witness against him. Their witnesses, their testimonies did not agree. 
Some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We've heard him say, I'll destroy the temple that is made with hands, and in three days I'll build another not made with hands. Yet, even about this, their testimony did not agree. Over and over again, we see in the trial of Jesus that their testimony was inconsistent. Number six, or number seven, twice Pilate said, He's innocent. And yet they totally bypassed those verdicts given by Pilate. Totally bypassed them. The verdict and the sentencing usually, always is separate. You have a verdict and then oftentimes days or weeks or even months later you have the sentencing. But not so with Christ. In verse 8, when a person was actually going to be sentenced, there was a little procession. They would have taken some, uh, you might call it a parade. I read into this story a little bit and they said that back then what would happen is they would put, uh, they would have a, a man on a horse and then next to that horse would be the person who was found guilty and they would march him through the streets. This was common in that area. They would march him through the streets and you would then, if you had any witness, further evidence, anything at all, against what had been done or in addition to what had already been discussed, then they would start the trial all over again in an effort to make sure that the right verdict was given. They'd start all over again, but not in the case of Jesus. All of that was radically set aside in the trial of Christ. In Mark chapter number 15, beginning in verse 3, or continuing in verse 3, it says, And the chief priest accused him of many things, and Pilate asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges we're bringing against you? But Jesus made no further answer. So Pilate was amazed. Speaking of Pilate, here's the second thing. The injustice of personal substitution by Pilate. Now, if you know anything about Pilate, just quickly on Pilate, he was very cynical, he's very cruel, he was a heartless ruler. Herod, Herod was also a heartless ruler, but Herod hated Pilate, and Pilate hated Herod. They had a lot of bad blood between them because of trials they had been to together and had differing opinions and a lot of bloodshed between the two. Here are some of the things that Pilate said while he was talking to Christ. Very cynical, Pilate was. John chapter 18, verse 35. Pilate said, I'm a Jew. I'm a Jew. What are you bringing this to me for? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Very cynical, Pilate acting as if this whole thing was an inconvenience to him. John 18, verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? John 18, 38. Pilate said, What is truth? Very cynical. What is truth anyway? John 19, 14. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And by the way, that was not a comment of respect. That was a comment of disrespect, great mockery, great sarcasm. And then in John 19, in verse 22, when he came time to ask him to change what he had written on, the, uh, on that sign that was placed above Jesus, above his head on the cross, when it came time for that to be placed up there, Pilate answered, they wanted to change it, Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. In other words, I won't give this another minute of thought. This was Pilate. Christ, for him, was just an inconvenience. Read with me, if you would, as we continue in that text. Mark chapter 15, verse 6. Now, at the feast, the feast of the Passover, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. This was the way 
to appease the people. Let's release a prisoner. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. The crowd came up again to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. Barabbas may have been the first one that Christ was substituted for. But certainly he would not be the last one. Incredibly unjust that Christ would die and Barabbas would go free. You know, there's a lot I want to say to this particular point because I believe this, this really puts you and I into the story. And so I want to do this. It's been a long time since I've done it. Some of the first service remembered it. It's been probably four years since I've shown any part of this video. But for five minutes, I want to ask you to enter into the story with me as we look into this situation, this injustice of substitution that Pilate made for Jesus. Listen as Judah Smith describes this event. With Barabbas. We see the story of Jesus going to the cross and everything seems to kind of be hand in hand. And then there's this one character that seems to interrupt the narrative. His name's Barabbas. We don't even know much about him except that he's a murderer, a leader of an insurrection, a rebel. And why he's even mentioned, sometimes I'm not so sure. It's like, what? Let's. This is about Jesus going to the cross. So in this moment, Pilate thinks, I hold the destinies of these two men in my hand. I know the Jews have a tradition that on a holy day, I will release one of the prisoners on death row. Pilate stands on this audacious stage who now presents Jesus, son of the living God, versus Barabbas, the thug and rebel. He says, all right, who do you want? This is blasphemy. This is this has gone too far. There's no comparison. This is a rightful prisoner. A man who should be on death row. He's a rebel against Rome. He leads a, a rebellion. He murders people. He's a bad man. He's a thug and he's a crook. He deserves the chains and he deserves the crucifixion. Jesus? What has he done but heal, restore? Deliver, set free, open blind eyes, open deaf ears, heal the lame and the leper. What what has Jesus done? Who do you want? We want Barabbas. Yeah, give us Barabbas. The Roman soldiers come up and they put the key in and they unlock Barabbas from his chains and shackles. And he walks down the platform, welcomed by all of his thug friends. Yeah, the people love me. Yeah, that's right. I don't even know who this Jesus guy is, but all I know is my people love me. There seems to be no conscience of Barabbas. There's no record of him turning to Jesus and saying, I owe you everything now, or you have set me free. No, I don't see any of that in Barabbas. And God knew that. Jesus stood there, silent for he knew the will of the Father. He said, it's fine, Father. Let him have Barabbas. For Jesus knew that the Father would have to treat Jesus like Barabbas so he could treat Barabbas 
like Jesus. Barabbas thought it was the people that set him free. No, 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 no. It was the love of a heavenly father. When I look at the story, I realize who Barabbas really is. That's me. That's you. That's us. And I thought I was reading this the other day, and I felt God speak to me. I love Barabbas. I love him. But God, he's a bad man. I love him. And I wanted him to go free. But didn't you know that he probably would have never acknowledged the free get? Yeah, but I love Barabbas. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God sent his son for Barabbas. Even the one he knew would walk away from Jesus and his free gift and never come back. He loves them. And the nerve, the call, the audacity of believers to think, I got saved by grace, but now that I'm in this deep, dark place of bondage, I better work hard to get myself out. What? That's the opposite of the gospel. Are you bound? Are you held under the power of this temptation, this sin? Do you feel like it's controlling you? What are you going to do? I'm going to shake myself free. Stop it! No, you won't! You're no match for the powers of hell and the urges of sin. You will not overcome it and you will never overcome it. You'll just be another statistic. There's no answer within yourself. Your own merit, your own goodness, your own discipline, your own devotion will not save your marriage and will not save your kids. There's only one. And he's the one that took your place. He's the one that stood silently on the platform with Pilate and said, yes, let him have Barabbas. Take me. How many times have I stood on that platform with Pilate and Jesus and I'm the Barabbas? And they start to take my chains off. And I say, no, no, I deserve this. I deserve the guilt. I deserve the shame. I deserve the consequence. I deserve it. Jesus seems to look at me, say, no, son. Let me have it. Let me have your sin. Let me have your pain. No, God, I did it to myself. I deserve it. My marriage won't make it. This is what I deserve. I deserve divorce. I deserve poverty. I deserve sickness. I deserve it all. No! Today in this auditorium, as we look at this account of Jesus, I wonder how many of us up to this point have just said no. No. I'm good, man. I'm good. I'm, 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 I'm working my way there. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm doing my thing. I'm, I'm going to make this work out. I, one of these days, I'll, I'll, I'll get those things right. I'm just, just give me some time. No. How many of us are living in that guilt and shame of the past and feel as if we're just not worthy of that salvation? That's the opposite of the gospel. No. Let's change that to yes. Yes, Jesus. I receive your grace. I receive your gift. We're halfway through this text. 
But this is such a powerful place for us to begin to respond. Let me give you number three. Consider this. The injustice of the harsh condemnation from the crowds. Well, we can see that today even on our streets, can't we? Mark chapter 15, it's hard to miss this. Look at it. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, what shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? And they cried out, crucify him. Now remember, Pilate, he was known as a ruthless murderer of people. But even in his darkened mind, he recognized the immense innocence and purity of Christ in this statement. Why? Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. This is the crowd of popular opinion. Majority rules, every person feeding on one another. The mob mentality is still with us today. We've seen it this past week on the streets of Philadelphia. As things begin to get out of control in this story, Mark chapter 15 and verse number 15. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And then in this little statement that we're going to come back to in just a moment, and having scourged Jesus. We saw the picture where that took place a moment ago and in the home of Caiaphas, the high priest. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. I ask myself, who were these people? This is pretty cruel. I mean, did they hear Jesus teach? Could some of these people have been part of the 5,000 who he fed on that hillside? Who are these people? Were some of these people waving palm branches just a week before? Well, if you think the crowd was harsh in their condemnation, and I do and you do, I'm sure, consider number four, which is the merciless torture by the soldiers. The merciless torture by the soldiers. Mark chapter 15, verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace. That's the governor's headquarters. That would have been Pilate's home. And they called together the whole battalion. Now, that that statement, the whole battalion, is more than just what you think, what I thought. That is 600 soldiers specifically assigned to Pilate. These were men who were trained to kill. They were heartless. To them, Christ was just a game. These men would have gone to those, those, those martyrs, where, uh, those stadiums where lions would have been uh, in that pit. And they would have thrown men down. And they would have watched this as game. I mean, this was fun to them. And they clothed him in a pur- purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! Again, not out of respect, a term of mockery. No respect in their words. And they, striking his head with a reed and spat on him. And kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. Folks, the scourging of Jesus was brutal. In fact, I want to just give you a quick description of that on the physical death of Jesus Christ by William Edwards. This statement, and they scourged him. And they scourged him. This is what they did. Flogging was a legal preliminary to every Roman execution. And only women and Roman senators or soldiers were exempt. The usual instrument was a short whip with several single or braided leather thongs of variable lengths. 
in which small iron balls or sharp pieces of sheep bone were tied at intervals. Occasionally, staves also were used for scourging. The man was stripped of his clothing and his hands were tied to an upright post. The back, buttocks, and legs were flogged either by two soldiers or by one who alternated positions. The severity of the scourging depended on the disposition of the soldiers and was intended to weaken the victim to a state of just sort of collapse or death. After the scourging, the soldiers often taunted their victim. As the Roman soldiers repeatedly struck the victim's back with full force, the iron balls would cause deep contusions and the leather thongs and sheep bones would cut into the skin and tissues. Then, as the flogging continued, the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. Pain and blood loss generally set the stage for circulatory shock. The extent of blood loss may well have been determined how long the victim would survive on the cross. At the praetorium, Jesus was severely whipped. It is not known whether the number of lashes was limited to 39 in accordance with Jewish law. Peter said this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, that he himself bore our sins in his body, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, because by his wounds you and I have been healed. The injustice by merciless scourging of the soldiers. Now, if you're like me, sometimes I feel this way. I don't know about you. I don't know if you've ever felt this way, but if you're like me, I'm reading that and I'm thinking, man, I wish I was there. I wish I would have been there. You see, I would have stepped in and I would have allowed that to happen. That was just not right and somebody should have stood up and if I was just there. But that's the whole point. You were there. And I was there. We all were there. It was our sin that nailed him to the cross. Your sins and my sins were a part of what Christ was there paying for and making an atonement for so that we could have a righteous God that could forgive us of our sins. He paid a debt he did not owe because we owe a debt we could not pay. Notice in the text, Mark chapter 15, something kind of interesting All of a sudden, out of nowhere, Christ is on his way to this place of crucifixion. And the Bible says in verse 21 of Mark 15 that they compelled a passerby. Here's an opportunity, one opportunity in this incredible, painful story. One opportunity for someone to step in and give Christ just a a little bit of relief. And Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and, kind of a strange name, Alexander and Rufus. Rufus's dad, Simon the Cyrene, was called to carry this 200-pound cross. Later on in Romans chapter number 16, the last chapter of Romans indicates that one of the key leaders of the church at Rome was a man named Rufus, Greek Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Christ is letting us know something here. That this man who stood in and stepped in to take that cross from Jesus was recognized here by his son Rufus. And that was my dad. My my dad did that. And then we come to number five, our final injustice. The injustice of cruel crucifixion by you and by me. In Mark 15, and they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. Christ didn't want to dull the pain in any way. 
They crucified him and divided his garments among them. They casted lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him, the king of the Jews. The injustice of the cruel crucifixion. You say, well, well, how cruel is crucifixion? Well, William, Frederick William Fuhrer in his writing on the crucifixion put it like this. For indeed a death by crucifixion seems to include all that pain and death can have of horrible and ghastly dizziness, cramp, thirst, starvation, sleeplessness, traumatic fever. Again, we're putting things in perspective. Tetanus, publicity of shame, long continuance of torment, horror of anticipation, mortification of unintended wounds, all intensified just up to the point at which they can be endured at all, but all stopping just short of the point where which would give to the sufferer the relief of unconsciousness. The unnatural position made every movement painful. The lacerated veins and the crushed tendons throbbed with incessant anguish. The wombs, inflamed by exposure, gradually gangrened. The arteries, especially of the head and the stomach, became swollen and oppressed with surcharged blood. And while each variety of misery went on gradually increasing, there was added to them the intolerable pang of a burning and raging thirst and all these physical complications caused an internal anxiety which made the prospect of death itself an exquisite release. Truman Davis in his book, The Crucifixion of Jesus, answers this question. What exactly does a person die from? How how exactly does a person die from crucifixion? As the arms fatigue... Great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward, hanging by his arms. The pectoral muscles are unable to act. Air can be drawn into the lungs but cannot be exhaled. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to get even one short breath. Spasmodically, he is able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in the life-giving oxygen. Hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-renting cramps, intermediate partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. Then another agony begins, a deep crushing pain deep in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. The compressed heart is struggling to pump thick, heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to grasp in small gulps of air and all of this described in one statement Christ suffered for our sins in Mark chapter number 15 continuing in the text verse 27 and when they crucified two robbers one on the right hand and one on his left those who passed by derided him wagging their heads and saying aha you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days save yourself come down from the cross So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another saying, he saved others, he can't even save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Doesn't seem like it could get any worse, does it? But it does get worse. Look at verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, this three-hour period. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, 
Why hast thou forsaken me? And in that moment, right in that moment, God the Father poured out his wrath and righteous anger and indignation upon his own son. In that very moment, Christ made the atonement or payment for every sin that has ever been committed since the beginning of mankind until right now. Which means in that moment, in that moment, I was there and you were there. We were there every sin. We see the news today. We read the newspaper. We, we read all these things that are happening in our world today. And maybe you join me sometimes in saying, I don't understand why God doesn't do something about that. But the fact of the matter is, he did do something about that. God's anger about all of the sins of mankind was poured out upon Christ. And God in his infinite mercy beyond our own rebellion wants to give love and receive those who would turn to him by faith. A little line that summarizes all of this was found in a wonderful old hymn. On him almighty vengeance fell which would have sunk the world to hell. In that moment, every sin God's anger over every sin was poured out upon the cross. Every lie, every betrayal, every theft, every blasphemy, every abortion, every adultery, every rape, every murder, all of it, all of God's anger over that poured out on Christ in that moment. Why? So the opportunity for you and I to be forgiven of our sins could be purchased by his son Jesus. Second Corinthians chapter 5 says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Again, 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might died as sin and lived to righteousness. Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. Transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. The greatest suffering, listen, was not the physical suffering of Christ. It was not. As bad as that was, the greatest suffering that Jesus suffered on that cross was that the perfect fellowship that Jesus had with his father was broken it had been broken my god my god why hast thou forsaken me the injustice of crucifixion by you and by me and all i ask is is this question now in conclusion what is your response to that i mean all of that is pretty intense all of that is is is, is unbelievable and here we are again in church for some of us you know the 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 thousandth time or the two thousandth time maybe we've heard this story over and over again but what is our response to this so let's look at our text as we close the message and the series and let's see how they responded how they responded and let's choose one of their responses let's reflect and meditate first of all on mark 15 35 the first response the bible says here that some of the bystanders Responded like this. Behold, he's calling Elijah. Let's just call response number one a response of religious confusion. I mean, it, it, you know, it's kind of a crazy response. You know, behold, he's calling Elijah. 
hey, you know, maybe, maybe Elijah's out there could come and maybe take his place or could come and rebuke everybody and, and, and 10,000 angels could come and re- take Jesus out of this place because this surely doesn't seem right to me. You know, it's probably a better way than this. I mean, I can think of a lot of better ways. I mean, why did he have to come and die? Could we, I mean, could we just work for this thing? I mean, it just seems like it could, it could work better if we just could, could work our way, weigh our good deeds against our bad deeds, and it would all work out. Don't let your response be a response of religious confusion. It seems as if another way that we're confused is we approach a story like this with apathy and with indifference. Can I assure you, church, this is no time to be apathetic or indifferent about what we're reading. Don't be confused by this narrative. Listen, this is something that happened. And this is a story that you and I need to own and realize that without it, we would be forever separated from God with no chance of ever having an opportunity to be with Jesus. So you know what my response to that is? No. I will not be confused by this narrative at all. My response is not going to be confusion. Secondly, another wrong response found in Mark chapter 15, verse 36. Someone, we don't know who it was, but they filled the sponge with sour wine. They put this on a reed, they give it to him, and they they say, wait, let's just wait, let's hang out at the cross a little bit and see whether or not Elijah will come and take him down. He's not dead yet. Let's try to keep him alive a little longer. Let's just wait around and just see, maybe we can give him some relief. Poor Jesus, poor thing, look at him, oh, it's so sad. Poor Jesus up there on that cross, suffering. I just, I hate it for him. Number two, the wrong response is relational compassion. You know, Christ was not on that cross by accident, church. He doesn't need us to feel sorry for him. He could have called 10,000 angels, as we used to sing, to set him free. But he is the king of kings. And he is the Lord of lords. And Jesus didn't lose control and end up on the cross. It was no accident that he died. He willingly went to the cross for you and for me. In fact, in John chapter 18, we see that Simon Peter, he had a sword. He drew that sword. He struck the high priest. He cut off his right ear. Jesus is, uh, Peter's like, yeah, I'll take care of this. I, you know, I'm going to step in for Jesus. He's the good guy, and I'm going to rescue Jesus from this. He needs me. I'll come through. Jesus' response to that was, put your sword up, Peter. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? In other words, there's no other way but this. Jesus was there because he loved us. He was providing for us a payment for our sins. But there's a right response. And I want you to follow that narrative with me. Look at verse 37 as we begin to find this right response. First of all, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And when Jesus breathed his last breath, the Bible says something happened. Look at it with me. In my version, it says the curtain. Maybe yours says the veil. Either way, this curtain, this veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, what was that veil? It was a symbol. The veil was a symbol of the separation between God and man. It had been there for a long time. But because Christ had died, and now Christ had become the mediator between God and man, access to God is directly open to anyone who will come to God by faith. We don't need a priest to go through anymore. 
We can go directly to God, and that's the good news of the gospel. And so a real response to this is what we read in verse 39. It's the centurion. He stands, he faces Jesus. He saw that in this way, he breathed his last. He said, truly, truly, this was the Son of God. A right response to who Jesus really is. Yes, yes, a clear confession. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is the God of very gods, dying to make payment for your sins and mine. He rose from the dead, proving that he had victory over sin, death, hell, and the grave. And today he offers to you while there's still time. But trust me, as we saw the other night, the door is going to shut very soon. It's going to shut very soon. This requires a response today, church. The right response is to recognize who Jesus is. He is the Savior of the world. He is the Lamb of God who took your place. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we can be saved. It's Jesus. And so the only appropriate response to it is to acknowledge who he truly is. So here's my question. Have you done that? Have you acknowledged who Jesus is? Has there been a time in your life? Look, hey, the testimony we had a moment ago from our Evelyn who got baptized was, hey, I finally saw it. And when I saw it, it's almost like the veil opened. It came down. She said it was like the walls came down. I saw the love of God like I never saw it before. And she gave the only response that's appropriate. And that is yes. Yes. If you've never been saved, you've never trusted Christ. We come to the end of this series with a, with, with a call, a call to be saved, a call to trust Christ. So I'd like to ask you to bow your heads and your hearts with me. Let's take a moment. Let me ask you this question. Have you opened your heart to Jesus? As we just take this moment to to just meditate on what we've heard. I'm going to ask you this. Have you asked Jesus to be your Savior? And if you haven't, in just a moment, I want to encourage you to come forward. Say yes. Give the right response. You know, I used to be religiously confused. I grew up thinking I had to go to the priest to get my sins confessed, and so I did it every single month. Father, forgive me, for I have sinned. My last confession was. You know what I brought with me to that confessional booth every month? A list of all my sins. You better believe I kept up with them. My only chance to go to heaven was to do what that priest said. And every time he would tell me, say the, go say your rosary this many times and make sure to light seven candles. And I would do that every month. Until one day, I saw Jesus for who he really is. It was September the 1st, 1978, and I saw him high and lifted up on that cross. I saw him die for my sins that day. And I've never been the same since. I've made the right response. I confessed him as my Savior. If you've never done that, 
in just a moment, we're going to encourage you to step out. I mean, without hesitation, step out. Let us have an opportunity to just share with you what Jesus has done for you, or maybe even just pray with you or talk to you after the service. And if you're here today and you've accepted Christ, you know that you're saved, you've made that decision. And I have a question for you too. What is your response to the series of messages on growing in the likeness of Christ? Where are you at on this thing? Is your desire to lay down your life now for Christ and serve Him? Let's put things in perspective. What are you going to do with your life? What's important to you? In comparison to eternity and spending an eternity with Jesus, what are you struggling with in comparison to what Jesus has for you? I can assure you, surrendering your life to Jesus today in a deeper, more committed way is the only right response if you're truly a Christian. I challenge you to do that too. I'm going to pray, and when I pray, we can stand and have our response time together. Father, I love you, and I thank you for today. God, I sense that you're working in our church. I really do. I'm so excited about how you're moving, and I do sense a spirit of humility rising up in our church. Oh, God, I sense that we're beginning to say, this is, this is not about me. It's not about my petty desires and Lord these arguments that sometimes we have back and forth these discussions that go nowhere oh God may we humble ourselves today may we begin to put things in perspective oh father please continue to work and may you be high and lifted up this morning may we be humbled that you may be exalted Father, I also pray for those who have never received Christ as their Savior. They've never responded to Christ by saying yes to the payment of sin on the cross. Jesus, I pray they would come today and receive that free gift today. May today be the day of salvation. I love you, Jesus. I love you. I love your church. love these people. Now, God, we ask you to move. In Jesus' name, amen. Shall we stand together?